0: Back in 1962, Wilt Chamberlain accomplished something that uh, is truly amazing. He set the single-game NBA scoring record by scoring 100 points in a victory over the New York Knicks. Uh, Chamberlain played for the Philadelphia Warriors, and that 100-point game was part of a, a final score, 169 to 147. But Chamberlain scored 100 of his team's 169 points. And that feat probably goes down as one of the more unfathomable and probably unbreakable uh, sports records in American sports history. Now, one of the most amazing aspects of Chamberlain's performance that night is his success from the free throw line. Now, if you know anything about Wilt Chamberlain and his career, you know he was a historically bad free throw shooter. I mean, he was just lousy. He averaged for his career 51% from the free throw line. That's not great, is it, coach? No, 51%. Just for point of comparison, over the last 50 years, the average free throw percentage uh, for the the NBA over the last 50 years has hovered somewhere around 75%. Okay, so 51% is uh, really, really bad. But that particular night when Wilt Chamberlain scored 100 points from the free throw line, he, sh- he made 28 of 32 free throw attempts, which is an 87.5% clip, all right? And even throughout that season, his historic 1961-62 season, he shot a career best 61% from the free throw line. So I bring all this up to ask you the question, you know, what do you think was going on that season? And in particular, that night on March 2nd of 62, What was it that that caused, that helped Wilt Chamberlain to elevate his game from the free-throw strike? Well, you could probably break that down, and there may be a lot of different factors, but one of them is this. At the encouragement of his coach, Frank McGuire, history says that Chamberlain had been experimenting with a different kind of free-throw shooting technique, a different kind of form. Now, rather than the conventional form, all right, of elbow extension and release, maybe Coach Stapler or Danny, you guys can come up here and coach us up a little bit better on that, okay, so don't critique the form, but as opposed to that, that typical uh, elbow extension and release, McGuire, Chamberlain's coach, encouraged him to shoot instead underhanded. Now, I don't know about in Alabama, but in Tennessee where I come from, we call that something else, Right? It's called a granny shot, okay? Apologies to all the grandmothers in the room. I didn't name it that, okay? But Chamberlain's coach, Frank McGuire, encouraged him to shoot underhanded. And it contributed to unparalleled success, not only that night for him, but throughout the course of that season. Because that evening, when he made those 28 free throws, shooting underhanded, that is also an NBA single-game record that still stands. What's truly fascinating about all that is, is what followed. Despite that unprecedented level of success, Chamberlain eventually abandoned the underhand the granny shot, to go back to the more con- uh, conventional form of free throw shooting. And predictably, when that happened, his percentages plummeted again. As we said, he shot only 50% from the stripe for his career. And the reason... The reason he would change his form, he said he didn't like the way he looked shooting underhanded. And more pointedly, he said, shooting those granny shots, quote, makes me feel like a sissy. If you know anything else about Wilt Chamberlain, you know that's probably pretty low on his list. Now, he had a high priority of not looking like a sissy in any part of his life. Wilt Chamberlain Valued the wrong things. Well, Chamberlain, I would say, valued image over outcome. To me, that's the only reason you change something that is working in a way that hasn't worked for anybody else before or since. You value image over outcome. We can put it this way. Chamberlain decided that he would rather fail while blending in Then succeed while standing out. He valued the wrong things. So this month, we've been talking about what it means for us to be in Christ, for us to be a new creation in Christ. We've said that in Christ, we have this new identity. We become a new creation people. And as part of that new creation, we're called to create this new kingdom culture with some of the language we used, Basically, we're saying we do that when we live in obedience to the commands that God gives us. When Jesus says you need to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, there is an attendant culture that comes about when God's people do that. Last week, we talked about one aspect of that new kingdom culture. It's new conversations. It's controlling the way we speak. And so we said that as new kingdom creations, we have this new way of of speaking to one another, this new discourse. Basically, we said that Christians are called to speak in a way that is gracious, gracious. A way that is seasoned with salt. That's the kind of dialogue that we seek together. And as you heard from James uh, this morning, as he kicked us off, he reminded you that one of the ways we as a church are seeking to to make those kinds of conversations more common is through through the growth of these new community life groups. If you don't know much about those, I'd encourage you to stick around and ask us a few questions. But today we want to close out this short series. We want to close out our study for the month of January. Can you believe that's where we are already in 2017, closing out uh, the month of January? We want to close today by talking about how as God's kingdom people, we operate out of a different economy. That we operate according to a value system that really subverts the value system of the world. We would put it this way. That as kingdom people, we live out of a kingdom economy. That's a wordy way of saying we value what God values. We want to value the things that are most valuable and most important to God. So in just a few moments, when I'm done, we'll, we'll uh, turn things over to Dane Richardson, who'll speak on behalf of the elders, and he'll talk to us about uh, our budget for this year. And we'll do two things. We always do this. We look back on the year that, that we just came out of, And Dane will walk us through and point out just a few of the things that God did in our midst in 2016. And we we praise God and thank him for that. And we'll also shift and we'll be praying about 2017 and where we go from here and how we want to use our resources in this particular way to bless other people. And so Dane will have all that to say in just a moment. But before we hear from our shepherds, I just want us to to reflect for a few minutes on this, this question at the bottom of the screen. What does God value? What is most important to God? I think that's an important conversation for us prior to a a budget presentation. The 8th century B.C. was a really crazy time in in the Promised Land. There there had, had come about this wealthy upper class. This wealthy upper class emerged in both Israel and Judah. But with that economic growth came the predictable amount of corruption as well. And so one of God's prophets, a prophet by the name of Micah, He bursts onto the scene and he basically records and preaches against all of the sins of God's people in both the northern and the southern kingdoms. And so he he gets into it and and he starts talking about things like idolatry. Just an an ever-present issue among God's people, it seems. He talks about the unlawful seizure of property, how the rich could could just go in and, and seize the property of the poorest citizens in the land. And not only that, whenever the poor would, would raise uh, an objection to that and, and take the matter to court, well, the rich could just pay off the judge because they had all, of those, all those judges in their, in their hip pockets. He talks about the corrupt business practices that are prevalent there in the land. He, he accuses the leadership for failure, the civic and religious leadership. Uh, He spends a considerable amount of time talking about the violence that has just taken over uh, among God's people. And and he he looks in chapter 6 at this passage we'll talk about today. He addresses even this issue where the people seem to think that personal sacrifice is just a means of, of appeasing God, of turning away God's wrath as if God himself could be bought like the judges in the land. And so, in the sixth chapter of the the book of the Bible that bears his name, Micah preaches this scathing sermon. And the setting for that sermon is is a courtroom scene, only this time, God Himself is the prosecuting attorney, and it's His people who are on trial. Micah 6. Listen to what the Lord says Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. God begins this courtroom scene by turning to the jury. And in this case, it's the mountains of Jerusalem. And it's as as, as if he's appealing to the mountains and and saying, you know, all creation is going to bear witness here. What have I done to my people? I have this, this charge against Israel, and you mountains have seen for generations my faithfulness. So I call on you now to hear this charge against my people. Israel and Judah, they've been valuing, again, the wrong things. My people, what have I done to you? answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you. I gave you Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and Balaam, son of Baor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. God recalls the events of the exodus. He looks back and he remembers that time when he liberated Israel, when when God's people really became his people through that act. And he says to him that he has stood faithfully by their side. He recounts some of their history. Shittim is one of those stories we don't spend a lot of time reflecting on in our scriptures, but that's a place where the covenant was broken. And yet at Gilgal, it was then renewed once again. And even through the use of those names that don't mean a whole lot to us on this side of the ocean, we can look here and see what God is doing. He's appealing to Israel's history. And he's saying, through those times of thick and thin, for better or worse, I've been here. I've been faithful to my part of the covenant here. Yet, my people, the ones who have experienced liberation and freedom, they've chosen instead to oppress have chosen to make a heavy burden upon their fellow citizens. They have forgotten the Lord. And for this, the Lord makes his accusation. And after this, the voice shifts in Micah 6. And rather than hearing the voice of God, we now hear the voice of the defendant. We hear the voice of Judah. And the defense that rises up is, well, pretty meager if you ask me. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This defense actually proves the point that God is making against his people. This defense here proves how far God's people have drifted from the commands that he's given them. It's again as if Israel and Judah, they they tend to think that God can just be bought off like any old judge. And so they say, you know, with what can we come before the Lord? What can we do to appease him? Shall I come before him first with burnt offerings and calves a year old? That's a sacrifice of great quality. Think about the amount of time and energy and effort it would go, it would go into nurturing this calf for an entire year only to make that kind of sacrifice. Burn offerings were costly in the sense that the entire offering was consumed many times. You, you didn't get anything out of that. But also, according to the Old Testament law, according to Leviticus 22, do you know how, how young a calf was when it was typically offered up the the oldest like you had to wait seven days according to the to the word of God once that calf was seven days old one week old you could make the sacrifice 51 weeks in addition 51 weeks beyond what God even required 51 weeks of feed and care and nurture going into this sacrifice of great quality and in the preaching of Micah, the people say, okay, if, is that what it takes, Lord? You just want a, great, a, a, a sacrifice of great quality? Then let's go get the fattened calf. Is that what you want to appease your wrath? If not a sacrifice of great quality, then how about this? How about a sacrifice of great quantity? You don't want one? Okay, how about a thousand? Would that appease your wrath, O oh God? You don't want a thousand rams? Tell you what, how about 10,000 rivers of oil? We're getting into the absurd here. It's as if, again, Israel thinks that God can just be bought off. We just need to know what your asking price is, God. Everybody has a price. And then with this final sacrifice, this final meager, weak attempt to turn away the wrath of God, we see just how far the people have drifted from true faithfulness. When they realize a sacrifice of great quality and great quantity, okay, what about my own flesh? What about my own child? Would that appease your wrath? That sort of sacrifice is common among all the other gods in our day. How about that one, oh Lord? When that meager defense is over, the stage is pretty much set for God to come in and lower the boom, right? I mean if this is all you have we're just ready in this courtroom scene for God to walk in and slam the door and just lower the boom and read out the sentence of judgment and doom but God does something else. God chooses to reply to this meager defense by reminding his people once more of who they are and what he values. He's shown you oh man what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Judah is sentenced to value the things that God values, to desire the things that God desires. And more than anything else, God desires a responsive heart. That's what God wants. That's what God seems to value more than anything. He values a responsive heart. He values a heart that lives out of remembrance. A heart that remembers what he has done for us. Seems as if that's what God really values here. And in this teaching, in this sentencing, in this courtroom scene, before the bailiff comes and and flings open the door and the defendant gets to leave, God says there are these three things. These three things that I would have you do and I would have you remember because this is how I know that you value the things that I value. So act justly and love mercy and walk humbly with your God. Before we wrap up, let's just talk for a minute about each of those three. First, to do justly, to do justice. Justice in the Scriptures is is closely tied to the righteousness of God. It's it's tied to the righteous character of God of God. But justice carries with it this sense of of living out and embodying the righteous character of God in the relationships that you and I get to participate in. So you find this sort of thing in in the Old Testament. For Israel and Judah, justice making, justice seeking, was living in obedience to what God had already told them to do. So take the Ten Commandments, for instance, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. The first four of those have to do with pursuing righteousness because our God is holy. It's about Him creating a holy people. And so, those first four of those Ten Commandments have to do with our collective relationship with God and His desire for His righteousness to make us holy. But then we get those final six. We see the righteousness of God calling us to be a people of justice as it pertains to the way we treat one another. And so, we get these sort of commands Honor your father and mother, do not murder do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not covet. Those are matters of justice, right? Those are matters of justice because they matter to God. God is communicating that to his people. Elsewhere in the Torah, we have these commands from God about how to seek justice in other ways. Justice as it pertains to the stranger, the alien, the sojourner who is traveling through. We have words of justice for those who don't have a voice, the widow and the orphan among them, the the ones who would not have means to be able to even provide for themselves. There's so much written in there about care for the poor. We have passages in there that even teach Israel how to care for and be in relationship with those who were slaves among them. All of those matters get down to this idea of justice as it is connected to the righteousness of of God those are expressions of God's desire for his people to act justly and in Micah's day the people had forgotten all of that they had forgotten those commands and so God gives them yet another command In the words of Micah he says God has shown you that pursuing justice is a good thing but God doesn't just show us that in the Torah we see it also in the ministry of Jesus I would say all of that in the Old Testament was pointing us to the ministry of Jesus. When we get to Luke 4, Jesus is announcing his ministry. He is in Nazareth and he he takes the scroll in the synagogue and he rolls it out to Isaiah chapter 61 and he reads from this text, a text that he says is fulfilled in their hearing. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to this work. To preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So, we, as followers of Jesus, would do well to remember that the ministry of Jesus was all about a justice making, a justice seeking ministry. It was a fulfillment in many ways of what God had already encouraged Israel and Judah to remember in Micah chapter 6 as well. So, where this touches the ground for us, it means that as we look around and we look at the world that we live in, we can't turn a blind eye to injustice. No, we see it, we acknowledge it, and we, we seek to respond redemptively and faithfully to the injustice by trying to embody that righteous character of God. I think that means we as Christians should be looking for the broken places in our world, the places where we can lean in with, with the, the righteousness of God, with the love of God, with the compassion of God. And, and try to participate in the work that God is is doing to reconcile all things back into himself, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That's what it means to be a minister of reconciliation. So I'm proud of our heritage. For centuries, Christians have been involved in this kind of justice-seeking, justice-making work because God values justice. Not only that, he says for us to love mercy. Mercy is... uh, translation there of a hebrew word that points to covenant loyalty it really means that god is the god who keeps his promises many times that word is used to describe the righteous character of god in that he is merciful in covenant it means that god keeps his promises it means if god says he's going to do something he's going to do it and then here he tells his people i want you to embody that same quality i want you to love mercy i want you to keep your word I want you to be a people who mean what you say. I want you to be a promise-keeping, oath-keeping, mercy-loving people. And that has implications for the way that we understand both our relationship with God and our relationship with others. In both of those contexts, the same thing is required. What is required is relational commitment. That's what covenant loyalty is really all about. And if this word mercy is all about covenant loyalty, and that has an implication not only for the way I am in relationship with God, but if I start taking that seriously, if I begin to love mercy, if I begin to try and be more covenantally committed to people in my life, you think that's going to have an implication in my marriage? We are partakers of the new covenant together. We just gathered around the table and, and partook of this covenant meal together, Right? So if I'm going to be a person who loves mercy, if I'm going to model myself after the compassionate, promise-keeping love of God, then that means I have to honor my promise and my commitment to you, because you and I are in covenant together. It means that there's a certain way that I have to treat you, a certain way you have to treat me. If we're going to be in covenant together and love mercy and be shaped after the pattern of our promise-keeping God, it means I can't just get up from this table and start dogging you down even though I might want to. It means that I can't act out on my worst impulses toward you because the blood of Jesus makes us family. And that means that that promise has to count for something. That's what it means to love mercy. It means to seek in any and every possible way to embody the kindness, the faithfulness of who God is, even when I don't want to. We do that because we love mercy. And we love mercy because God values mercy. And then finally, humility. To walk humbly with God is to live in conscious fellowship with him. It's to recognize that he is God and I am not. That's a healthy thing for us to be in the practice of saying. He is God and I am not. One of my heroes in the Bible is John the Baptist. Because he could have been the Messiah. Not really. But in the eyes of many people, he could have been. He could have had the title. Let's put it that way, right? But he said, number one, I'm not. (laughs) Number two, my role in this is to be really, really small. And his role is to be really, really great. John 3, 30. I must decrease so that he can increase that's humility that's what it means to walk humbly with god i love the language of walking because it puts this in the context of a journey and it helps us understand that god is out in front that he is calling the shots that he is the one who goes before us he's the one who hems us in from behind he walks faithfully with us this is his church it's his world we're just along for the walk right So in that regard, we walk humbly. We remember, he's God, and I'm not. There's only one Messiah. The the, the role has already been cast. You and I don't get to play that part. But thankfully, he does have a part for us to play. It is for us to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. As we close, you can see those three again on the screen reflect on this this week i know your life's about to get really crazy here we're going to hear from dane in a second and then we're going to go to lunch and then you know the week is just looming okay can you find just a few minutes and reflect which one of those do you value the most Is there one of those as we talk about it that just kind of resonates with you and you know man hey that justice stuff i am all in I, i'm ready to go you know put me in coach let's do it right maybe it's mercy Maybe it's where you feel yourself really kind of getting passionate as we talk about this. Maybe it's the humility. We need leaders with great humility these days. And on the flip side, let me ask you this. Which one of those, which one of those do you and I need to value more? Where do I need to lean in a little more and say, okay, if God loves humility, okay, Lord help me learn to love it too. (laughs) If God loves mercy, Help me be that way, Lord. Justice, help me to see what your righteousness would have me pursue, God. He's shown us. Those are the three things he loves. Where do we need to be? More than anything else, as we said, God desires a responsive heart. If you need to respond in any way, we make a time available as we worship for you to do that. You can certainly respond in many ways just from where you sit. If that needs to happen just with you and God, I encourage that. But you'll see your shepherds down front and in the back of the room as well. If you need to respond and and get together with one of them privately to pray outside of this room or to share, share some things with us that we can publicly be talking about and praying about with you too, and we would welcome that. Respond in any way you need to. Let's stand together and let's sing. Jesus.